so I think, again, I think a case could be made that, you know, if the time and resources are invested to, to make the academic practice as good as it could possibly be, that that benefits that division, it benefits the OBGYN department, it can benefit the whole medical center by, you know, keeping more services within. And again, I think that's a model that can work. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Eric Foreman of the Fertility Division at Columbia University in New York. Dr. Foreman and I explore the advantages and pros and cons of private practice and academic practice, and where Dr. Foreman feels that there are advantages that the academic center has over private, and where he feels that the private advantages might be overstated. But before we get into that conversation, today's shout out goes to Dr. Albert Sue. Dr. Sue is from Missouri University, the University of Missouri, and has followed our content for a while. So I hope he gets to hear this shout out. Dr. Foreman and I explore these parallels in academia and private, where they're often merged nowadays, where they could merge as networks start to come in that are backed by private equity. And Eric also gives some advice for fellows that are applying for jobs, who stands out to him when he's working with interviews and, and interviewing candidates. And so whether you're a little bit more advanced in your career, but especially if you're thinking about these two particular tracks, I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Eric Foreman. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Dr. Foreman, Eric, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Uh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed your shows and your work, and I'm, I'm happy to participate. I wanted to have you on the show because for being a very soft-spoken guy, you're also a very popular guy. And I, I've always found you, you interesting because you uh, appear a number of different places. I think, uh, I think you're part of one of the advisory boards or maybe the scientific committee for MRSI. Is that right? Yeah, I'm on the executive board for MRSI, which is a, a great meeting that, that's also done a great job of transitioning in this era of COVID to have a virtual meeting last year. And we're having um, several virtual meetings throughout the year. So it's um, a, good, a good venue for people who are listening if they haven't participated previously. That's where we met in mm -hmm. person. So, and I've seen you on a, a few different committees, a few different subgroups, and you have an interesting career where you worked in private practice. You built a name for yourself. Now you're at Columbia in Manhattan. And so I wanted to start with, and that's what we're going to explore during the show is the difference in, in potential career paths for people in both of those avenues, how they're changed, what what's on the landscape for them. But how did you make your first decision coming out of fellowship? Why did you choose private practice to start? Well, I think part of it goes back to even my training and, and part of why you know me and I've met so many people, as you say, is I think I, I was fortunate to have an amazing training experience with 
Richard Scott, who's my mentor and a real leader in this field. And I had an opportunity to go to meetings like MRSI, you know, from my first year of fellowship. And there was really no limit to meetings and presenting research. And I took as many opportunities as I could to meet people and hear about what they were doing. Even from the time I was interviewing for fellowship, I even when I kind of had an idea of where I thought I was going to go, I loved the interviews and just learning about different places and different people. And, and even the other fellow applicants, I'm still, you know, friendly and collaborate with many of them, like more than 10 years later now. So I landed in fellowship at, at Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey through, at that time, UMDNJ, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, which became Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Now they're affiliated with Thomas Jefferson, but but the vast majority of the fellowship was at, at RMA. And I chose that fellowship because it really was a unique paradigm at that point that focused a lot on the embryology lab and giving fellows real clinical hands-on experience that could potentially set one up to become even a high-complexity clinical laboratory director, which came later. So so I was really excited about this new fellowship, this new way of training reproductive endocrinologists because I knew that in vitro fertilization was a huge part of what we do, you know, clinically, even though a lot of the fellowship time is spent learning other important things and doing research projects that may be less sometimes directly, but sometimes not so directly related to IVF. Still, the vast majority of reproductive endocrinologists spend a lot of our time with activity related to IVF, related to the lab, and really being intimately involved with what goes on there, I thought was critical. So I had a great experience, and then I had an opportunity to stay on, and I didn't really even, I mean, I maybe in retrospect, I should have, but I didn't really apply or interview anywhere else. It was just, it was everything was great, and I didn't have to move, and I knew everyone. I knew the nurses. I knew the embryologists. I knew, you know, I through my fellowship, rotated everywhere. So it was really easy to transition into an attending. That, that's one of the biggest transitions, I think, for reproductive endocrinologists. We have all these, you know, transitions, graduating college, medical school, residency, fellowship. And then as an attending, now you have to take all of that and, you know, kind of you're, you're never on your own completely, but seeing your own patients and, and integrating what you've learned through all those years to take the best care of your patients, but also now with a new group of people who maybe do things differently. So it was a pretty seamless transition because I, I knew how the system worked and and that was great. And I used that time to stay involved with the lab and I was able to become an HCLD lab director. So that really, I mean, I think summarizes kind of how I ended up staying in private practice. And I, mean, I didn't think about it so much as private practice more. This was a very busy clinical practice that's very academically oriented and did research and fit with my goals, really. Yeah, the division isn't always so so stark. There's often yep. a Venn diagram. We've had Michael Elper on the show to talk about Boston IVF's relationship with Harvard and Brigham and Women's. And, and, and so you are in fellowship in conjunction with a, a private practice. What you talked about one advantage being that you had a that you had a seamless transition when you chose to stay with that group. But what are some 
advantages and disadvantages if there are of having that type of relationship where there's because sometimes there's just the university and the health system sometimes there's exclusively private practice what is the benefit of of a relationship like where you started or disadvantage if there is one one of the advantages of a private group is that they you can be more autonomous with decisions like even things as simple as where you buy supplies or um, where you buy furniture, even when you're part of a bigger institution, often there's preferred vendors that you have to go through. Although that's not always set in stone. Again, you can make a case for why why something is important and benefits the division. And again, we've been successful at, at changing things here and doing things that we think benefit our division, but it's just kind of a different a different path maybe so you've been at columbia for a few years now and you are in a, a more senior role if someone from the university of the administration comes to you and says well eric we've got the opportunity to to merge in our program with a private group how do you advise them mm -hmm. on that mm -hmm. um that's a good question i mean i think it would um I'd want to know like what you know, what is the advantage? What are we gaining from such a merger? Um, you know, is there something that we are not able to do right now that we would be able to do? That you know, there have to be some benefit to us, to our division, to our staff and our patients. You know, and the department or the medical center for them to do it. So, you know, if it's maybe expanded our reach beyond, you know, where our current footprint is. And we could take some of the our approaches and and spread that beyond. I mean, that might be a reason. But I mean I think as you said before, some of these lines are sort of hazy and I don't necessarily, you know, I'm not sure that there are so many things that a private practice can do per se that that we can't do. Um, you know, and I think we've tried to sort of merge the best of both worlds that, you know, the, I think a common perception is maybe more that private practice focuses more on like the patient experience and, and outcomes and quality, whereas academics focuses more on research and education and things like that. And I don't think that dichotomy is necessarily so clear. Like I said, I... I had great research and training at a more private hybrid kind of practice. And I think we've done some things uh, or, and continue to try to make the patient experience, you know, as good as it possibly can be. And, you know, from day one that I came here, never had the attitude that it's an academic practice. So that means that we don't have to provide as great or better service to patients as any private practice. I mean, I think that that perception is out there that it's like a big, a big hospital, a big medical center, and you can never get through to someone or you don't know who your doctor is or they're doing research, but it doesn't have to be that way. I think we can, we can provide the best care that patients expect and be competitive, you know, from a clinical standpoint with, with any practice. Similarly, I think private practices, if they have the right focus can, and educate and they do and train fellows and residents and medical students and do amazing research. So I think, I don't think it's as, you know, I don't think it's as clearly defined. So 
I mean, my advice would probably be again, why do we need to do this? Is there something that you know that we're gaining? It sounds like you would need to be convinced of the benefit. It doesn't sound like you readily see the benefit. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think we're, you know, we definitely have always room to improve, but but I think we're, you know, we're trying to do that from within and looking at our, looking at ourselves, looking at our practice, continually evolving and improving. And I would need to hear, you know, why some outside entity is necessary or is going to make that better. So you felt that, well, just in speaking in broad strokes, you're talking about that it's often the case where private practices have more autonomy and academic institutions have less in making this decision where you're at right now. You, you don't feel that way from day one. You feel that you've been able to implement changes or at least implement, uh, at least give your input. And you said it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, so mm-hmm. how have you been able to to, to, what changes have you been able to to bring to bear or, or or improvements? Because I think people often do think of of academic practice as being a lot more rigid. And I can tell you from experience that I've had enough experience that that validates that. But I don't think it has to be an axiomatic axiomatic truth. And you might be right. able to right. to shine a light as an exception. What have some of those been? Well, I think I mean part of why I chose to move I was doing well, like you said, and I was, I think, taking excellent care of a lot of patients and at a very good center and involved in research and going to meetings and leading, you know, or helping to organize meetings. So I I was happy where I was, but this was a great opportunity, like you said, to have more of a leadership role, which I think, you know, a lot of, I, I, I thought was important, but also to to improve and shape things. And it's not just me single-handedly at all. There's a whole team of us who have really made a lot of changes from Zev Williams, who's a division director and recruited me. Colin Thomas, I know you know, is our um, COO administrator. And our whole team has had this vision of we have to improve. We have to improve our center. We have to improve the patient experience and not stop and keep improving. So I knew coming in that that there was going, they were receptive to change. I mean, so that may be different than some other situations where someone takes a new position and, you know, things are running smoothly and going a certain way and maybe more difficult to make broad changes. But from the beginning, we knew that we had to change our physical space and we built out a new clinical space, a new IVF lab. We had we changed the culture just of how we organize our our teams with with more clear defined teams that, that patients know, you know, who their doctor is, who their nurse is, who their financial coordinator is. You know, we try to be available. Patients want to hear and have access to their doctor. So, you know, being even willing to give out email addresses and communicate directly with patients. I think our patients, you know, in nowadays, you know, are not so accepting of hearing like that they have to wait a few weeks to talk to their doctor. If they have a question, they want more direct access. So, so we changed again, a lot of these things. Then from the clinical standpoint, we, as a group reviewed, our protocols, the way we do things medically, the way we treat patients, 
our lab protocols and tried to sort of, you know, merge and come up with best practices that we all agreed on, some of which things I had seen at a successful place, some of which was already established and and doing well here, some that others had, had seen in their experience. So, um, but, but I think in order for that to work, we needed buy-in from, from our doctors, from our nurses, from our management, from the university, that that change change was needed and that we could make changes and then we can evaluate how that was doing and make more changes. And so that's kind of the, you know, in big brush strokes, like you said, like the model that we've taken. And that's been, you know, in the beginning, it was pretty daunting, you know, because it's a lot it's easier to work at a place where things function, you know, pretty smoothly and you know how things work. Like I said, I, you know, knew everyone to come into a place where I, you know, almost didn't know anyone and then have to really reorganize. But if you can get that buy-in, you know, and everyone on board, everyone have input, it really can work really well. And that's been very rewarding experience. And I definitely would, would do it over again if I had to go back in time. Talk about how you get the buy-in, and I'm not, and I'm not necessarily suggesting this example, but I'm just giving you one example of someone that I knew that worked in academic REI practice that was very successful on social media, believed it to be a very useful tool in building rapport with their patients, and uh, not not just recruiting patients, but educating them, building rapport with them, and it was very useful and. The university said you can't have any uh, you, you can't have any social media content that's affiliated with your work here in any way, even if it's on your personal channel. And I, I think of just one example like that. But let's say if you wanted to invest in patient experience training, or you wanted to create new resources for patients, or some some many clinics don't even have their own website; they're just buried on a backlink of a backlink of the university site and they can't even get a Google my business listing. Talk mm-hmm. about how, how would you advise someone on on getting buy-in for those changes that they want to to see? And those are just a couple examples, but the examples that you gave are also valid. Yeah, I mean so that I mean that buy-in seems is like more high level. And I think, you know, I I mentioned before our leadership team like like Colin and Zeb, I think have done a really good job at advocating for what we need. I think that, you know, fertility med- or reproductive medicine, fertility clinics, you know, we're trying to practice in a field that's very competitive, especially in New York City. There's a lot of options. And so, you know, that's a choice. Do they want to have a really well-rounded department with a great reproductive endocrinology division that the heart of that is IVF and an IVF lab and if they do like don't compare us necessarily to other departments or divisions that maybe function in a different way but we have to look at like what are what are what is our competition doing and you know what kind of websites do they have what kind of patient services do they have are there are they do they have a presence on social media so I think that getting that kind of buy-in that this is what we need to do to thrive in this space and just again, to some extent, you have to make a strong case and be persistent and and hope that you have receptive leadership, which we did because they were committed to improving improving this division 
And, you know, we saw that. That's why I came here. You know, I think on my level, I'm the medical director and I'm the lab director. My focus is more on, like, again, getting the staff, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the embryologists to to buy into what we wanted to do. And, you know, that, I think, comes from experience and integrity and, and like, leading by example, I like to think of it. And also, honestly, like a little bit of luck, too. Um, gee, I don't want to credit luck, but I just, I, there are some anecdotes I remember just like when I first came here where they didn't, you know, maybe did, did things a certain way. And I knew we could do things a different way um, because I'd seen it and done so much in my previous experience and went out on a limb rather than, again, on the one hand, you could go with the flow and say, you know, I'm here now and this is the way they do it. Or you could say, I, you know, I know that that's the way it's been done and it can work that way, but we can also do things a different way and then actually do that and get a good result and then use that as an example to kind of get people to buy in. I mean, so first, I think you have to convince people have to believe in you that you're competent and you know what you're doing. And that goes from like procedures and you know, other doctors seeing like that, that, you know what you're talking about, you know what you're doing. And so like, I mean, I couldn't have come in here. I don't think like straight out of fellowship, even though I had a great training and experience, I don't think I would have been confident enough to go into, you know, meetings with other doctors who had more experience than me in terms of years and get them to buy into changing our protocols, changing our way of doing things or getting the lab to, you know, the embryologist to buy into changing some of the things that they were doing. But after four years, which I mean, isn't that, that long, but four busy years doing, you know, managing lots of cycles, doing lots of procedures, working closely with the lab. And, you know, it, that gave me, I think, more confidence that I could come in and say, like, let's do it this way. And, and even if it didn't work, because again, I said, I got, maybe I got lucky that a lot of things I did you know, worked out well and we got some good outcomes and, and I think that helped. But even if it didn't, I, I think I would have had the confidence to stick with it and the next time it would have worked and, but, you know, I wouldn't have given up so easily. I would be a bad fertility doctor because I only want to take on the cases that I know are going to be successful. I only want people to say these sorts of things about me and my company, like Greg in Chicago our resources um, are not endless. And I think that with Fertility Bridge, um, there's a much deeper dive. Or Dr. Young in Iowa. I've gotten more positive feedback from patients from anything in the last 30 years of practice. Or Brad in Seattle. You have uh, multiple experts on your team and for you know a very small price to get that level of, of uh, consulting for just just a, a couple hours uh, would be really valuable. Okay, you get the idea. So this is how we set you up so you are 100% guaranteed to be successful in your goal over time. It's not a magic wand. Until you do this, do not pass go, do not collect $200, and definitely do not get in any long-term commitments or launch initiatives. You sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic at fertilitybridge.com. You fill out your business needs profile. We establish your benchmarks and desired outcomes. 
Then we meet for our 90-minute consult. We provide you with business intel, revenue estimates, and a competitive overview of the field to facilitate the prioritization of your goals between your partners and leadership team. Then we have a 30-minute follow-up. We tell you exactly what you need to audit and strategize to build your plan. I'll also give you one big marketing idea that will make you say, damn, that's good. If we fail to do any of these things, we give you your money back because it's only $5.97 and because I need you to be successful because I need you to say all those really sweet things about me and my company. Maybe even a gem like this one from Holly and Dr. Hutchison from Arizona. If we didn't have Fertility Bridge, honestly, I think we would be getting close to retiring. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. You mentioned our mutual friend, Colin Thomas, who's the administrator, and Dr. Williams, who's the division chief. And of course, when anyone goes anywhere, well, presumably they're doing some sort of feeling it out to see what it would be like to work with those people. But was their ability, because you talked about their ability to work with uh, the leadership and the administration of the university, was that specific tenet, they, my administrator and my division chief's ability to work with the university, was that on your radar at all when you were interviewing them? A little bit. I mean, again, I think I just, I wanted, I definitely wanted to go to a place that one, you know, was open to change and, and wanted to get better. And, you know, from our chair, Mayor, Dr. Mary Dalton, who's a very well-known, well-respected chair, maternal fetal medicine, you know, she was very supportive and still is of, of our mission to, to continually improve and provide the best fertility treatment, care, and experience for our patients. So, I mean, it was definitely, you know, a factor that I, that I wanted to be able to work with, you know, the other leader, manager, management team and feel like I had, we had the support that we needed. There's a lot of REI fellows that listen to this podcast. So I want to try to give them some actionable career advice. One, and I'm going to ask you yours. Yeah. One, one piece that I thought of was that if this is a concern that people have, and I know that it is sometimes a concern of how rigid will this system be? Will I be allowed to, to bring my input? I think it's a good question for the division chief for whom someone is interviewing to say, tell me about a time where you had to persuade the administration of something and that you had to implement something that previously had not been implemented. I think that's a good, uh, that's one good question for people to be able to, to ask to, to kind of get an idea of one, how much your division chief wants to implement some change, but two, how it might or, or may not be possible, depending on how deeply they sigh when they respond. But for you, having been in both types of, of practice groups, what personalities, or maybe not personalities, but perhaps what type of profiles do you feel do better within each? Before I get to that, I, I mean, I do, I want to also mention just like, we'll get, if it's okay to sidetrack for just for a second, you know, how these lines are kind of blurred. Also, I think private practices that can be rigid and, you know, are large and in some ways bureaucratic too. So even the ones that, that aren't, like I, even the ones that aren't large and aren't necessarily right. bureaucratic can be every bit right. as rigid. 
there are places where, you know, there's things that they do and you might think we could do things differently, but that's the way it is. And it could be very difficult to change. And that could be private practice or academic. I think that more just reflects the culture of the organization and the leadership of that organization. So I think those are, those are I think, important things to think about when you're applying, as you said, for, for a job. And again, I mean, maybe I'm idealistic, but I mean, I think, I think you can do well. I mean, I think you have to be obviously like hardworking and passionate and care about your patients and good at what you do. And if you do all those things, like you can be successful in either place. And I think I was doing well where I was, and I think I would have continued to do well and grow and expand, you know, my abilities. And I think here, similarly. So I don't think there's any place where you can do well by, you know, not working hard. It's, it's hard work and it's a busy career, but it's very rewarding. Our patients are very demanding, but they're going through a very stressful experience, but it's again, very rewarding to help guide them through it in minimizing the stress and burden that they have. So, so again, I think anyone who has the right attitude can do well at either place, but I guess, do you yeah, interview? I mean, do you interview physicians when they're applying for a position yeah. at Columbia? <laughs> what do you notice? What are some of the things that come to the top of your head of what makes a candidate stand out versus one that you think eh, maybe not that one? I mean, I think as you you know you mentioned earlier, like make a name for yourself. I mean, I think one of the things that I really like about our division is that we we all have a certain focus or niche you could say like dr williams really focuses on recurrent pregnancy loss and complicated cases paula brady has focused on our oncofertility spinem corruption is focusing on our more prevention of genetic disease single gene pgp roger lobo you know is well-known expert on PCOS and menopause. Brianna Rudick manages our third party team. And we have a few other doctors as well. But I mean, I think having like a passion, an area that that you're really interested in, I think is really helpful to maybe differentiate yourself in a, you know, very crowded sometimes field or market. So that that's something that stands out. I think someone who can get along with other people is really important because these, you know, our, our clinics, our centers now are, you know, complicated places with, you know, multiple components with your own team and other teams and labs and being able to interact and get along with everyone where, you know, a growing center, we now have 10 doctors and, you know, we want to have, like I said, each doctor, have their own identity and their own interests, but also not have like 10 separate clinics functioning autonomously because that could kind of be chaotic. So someone that can get along, like, you know, come to consensus and say, this is the way we do things, but also is, you know, intellectually curious and innovative and, you know, thinking because we are going to reassess everything we do and if there is a better way to do it, we'll change it, but we'll all incorporate that into the way we do things. So, so 
those are some of the things that, that I think about. And someone who's, again, really passionate about this field. And, you know, like I said, even if we do research, even if we're in an academic place, we spend a lot of time talking to patients, answering their questions, counseling them. So someone who is good, good with patients and, you know, really understands like that we have to be available and, you know, to be available, you know, to patients, not, not 24 seven, but we have to communicate well and, and have systems in place where if patients again have questions that they want their doctor to answer that, that you're available to do that. In some cases, many people make the argument for private practice that they get to determine that, not so much against uh, academic medicine, but against networks, for example, that I don't want to be a part of a fertility network that is either publicly traded or partly owned by private equity because I want to be able to to make those decisions. I, but I never hear people talk about that 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 dynamic in in academic medicine, whether they feel like someone's telling them or, or not. So what, what is it like in academic medicine? Is it, is it on either side of those two or is it in the middle? I mean, I think it just varies so much that there's, there's so many different kinds of models where some REI divisions are, you know, more integrated with the academic medical center. And like you said, their, you know, their website is buried and they have to, they follow exactly the way everything else is done. And there's others that, that are allowed to be somewhat more autonomous. So I don't, I don't know that there's an, an answer that applies to all. I think, you know, there are some academic settings where it probably is difficult to change things. And then there's others where the leadership, you know, has given the division more autonomy and then depends on who's making those decisions. You know, is it just one person, like the division director, who sets everything from above, or is it more collaborative, where they're, you know, all the doctors have input? I think that that's true in private practices as well. Whether it's a network and there's some protocols or ways of doing things that come from above, or it's even a smaller practice, but there's the one person who founded it or something that sense everything. So again, I think like like I said before, a lot of these dichotomies I think are not such really dichotomies. I think they these kind of dynamics can exist in in either setting. You know, I think one one thing that's different though, I mean at least as a fellow coming out thinking about, you know, that idea about being part of a practice or is it going to be taken over in some way by a larger network or private equity. I mean, I think there is, there have been a lot of changes as you know, probably better than me in this field. So that, that maybe creates some uncertainty, you know, academic center there's, I mean, there's always uncertainty in everything, but an academic center, I mean, I think it's less common that it's, you know, taken over by some outside entity unless like you said there was you know it happened but yeah i was going to say is that still true that and that maybe segues to a a question i have about what's the future for academic are we going to see more of that we've seen some of that where rei divisions essentially acquired by fertility networks they maintain their relationship with the university and i'm not talking about the the fellowship programs necessarily i'm talking about 
the IVF centers of REI divisions in academic centers being owned by private equity. They, they still have an, uh, an academic, maybe a research or a teaching obligation to the university, but they, their, their salary comes from the, the network. And I wonder, is that the future of academic practice? Is, are we going to see lots of IVF centers being sold off or partly sold off? Because it's like the health system's like, you know what? We're spending a lot of our attention on the oncology division. That's where we make most of our money. We could make more money by just letting this part be partly controlled by another entity. Is that the future of yeah. academic practice? And if, and if it isn't, what is? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, but I... I think, you know, if this private equity or, you know, is coming in, it must be because they view it as a profitable area of medical treatment and otherwise they wouldn't go into it. So it just, to me, doesn't make sense, like why the university or academic setting would want to give that up. If, you know, if they can't do it well and it's failing, that's a problem. And, you know, I think then the choice is either to just, you know, give it up completely and not have fertility or reproductive services or to improve it and maybe modernize it and, you know, be able to compete with those private practices or to spin it off, like you said. I mean, I think the model that, that we have of being able to make improvements and work within the medical center, I think it could work and I think there's advantages where I think we know we have to train future reproductive endocrinologists and that's usually done within an academic setting. And, and if we grow, you know, hopefully some of those people will stay and like I stayed where I trained and some will go and train, you know, move and train in other places. Potentially, I mean, I think have some advantages that private practices don't have, which we, you know, we haven't talked about yet, but, you know, we have, name recognition. I know you do a lot of marketing, but, you know, if you did a survey of, you know, people before they ever know that they're going to need fertility services, you know, people have heard of Columbia or Northwestern or Stanford, like they live in that area where there are private practices or networks that those of us who are in this field, we know these names and they're very brand names to us, but are they to someone who's, you know, just trying to get pregnant for a year and haven't and ask their doctor, you know, if that's how they find, you know, there's different ways people find us. But that's an advantage that I think, you know, we can use to improve our centers and make them better. So there's usually OBGYN within the academic center who are seeing patients who are trying to get pregnant and wind up needing fertility services or single women who are thinking about preserving their eggs. And that's a referral source that outside private practices, you have to work really hard to, to make those connections. And, and I did. Even, when then, I was it's not, even, even then it's not always guaranteed that that referral source, I've looked at some academic centers, referral patterns, and it's like, wow, you have a fraction of what your health system is doing in terms of, you know, OB deliveries, for example, or you're just right. total OBGYN volumes. You, you have a much smaller fraction of that than uh, against the marketplace. So I don't know that it's saying you can't use that and become complacent and say, oh, you know, we're at Columbia and there's all these OBGYNs, so 
we're automatically going to get those patients. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, though, that if you do provide as good or better care than anyone else and you still have to internally market and give patients the best experience, but if, if you get to a point that you're just as good or better than anyone else, you know, then I think you can accrue a higher proportion of those internal referrals and have those patients stay within the system for delivery and other medical care. I mean, I, we get patients who, you know, they go to Columbia for, for their other medical care and they want to keep everything within the same system. Yeah, if we didn't provide good services, they wouldn't stay or their doctor wouldn't steer them here. But because I think we do provide really great care, it's easy to stay within the same system. Same as when I'm referring someone who doesn't have an OBGYN or, you know, just moved to the area. Obviously, if an OBGYN refers us a patient, they should stay with that doctor. They have a relationship. But if they don't have an affiliation, you know, I know we have great obstetricians and maternal fetal medicine specialists and minimally invasive surgeons. And, you know, I would, you know, refer to those people. So it helps the department in, in other ways versus, you know, potentially missing out on some of that if you just use the name, but you're sort of separated. Maybe there's not as much of an incentive to try to keep patients within the system. So I think, you, again, I think a case could be made that, you know, if the time and resources are invested to, to make the academic practice as good as it could possibly be, that that benefits that division, it benefits the OBGYN department, it can benefit the whole medical center by, you know, keeping more services within. And again, I think that's a model that can work and make sense. I don't know. It's hard to predict. I'm not a hospital administrator. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's such a small piece of compared to cardiology and oncology. But I think if you're looking at, you know, trying to just overall provide the best care and be as productive as possible, I think there's a role for keeping fertility treatment within an academic setting. You mentioned um, that there were some other advantages. What other advantages would academic centers lose by selling off to network or, or breaking off? Well, with the, I, mean, I think I was thinking more, you know, of like from, from a physician standpoint first, you know, in choosing to work in a place, I, again, I had a very rewarding experience and, and I think it can be, but there's also some advantages of being part of a larger department and medical center that, you know, it's easy to, to get other opinions. I'm not saying you couldn't do this outside, but you're, you know, more separate than, you know, I have dozens of other doctors within this department. And then even within this medical center, if a patient, you know, needs an end, a medical endocrinologist, a neurologist or something, you know, to easily be able to look up and reach out to, to someone in that department or division or collaborate within the medical center, you know, on research ideas. I think we all like want to want to feel like we're part of some some something bigger and greater. And I mean, feeling again, I think the academic center provides an important role in you know in training and service and caring for patients in a community. And it's rewarding, you know, it's rewarding on our level to take care of patients and help them build their families or preserve their fertility, but it's also rewarding to know that we're part of a, a bigger center that, that has a really important mission. 
um, and again, I think is stable. You're right. Again, it's possible. Anything is possible that it could be sold off or spun off, but you know, it's, it's a large university that, that hopefully is not going to get sold or bought or go out of business or something like that, even though things can change. I think there's some stability there. So that's something that, you know, I think about when I talk to other doctors um, or fellows applying a common question that comes up in private practice revolves around like partnership and ownership and future. And I think it creates a lot of stress and a lot of time is spent on this topic. I don't think any, most of us didn't go into medicine to like own a business or run a business. That's just my opinion. I mean, I think we went into it because we were interested in some, you know, in medicine in general or some area of it, or again, becoming a physician. And it's kind of evolved that those of us who are in this field, the way, the way it is, that that has become, and, and, and probably in other areas as well. But we know, I mean, there is definitely a business side of medicine, but I, I feel less stress. Like I know I'm never going to own Columbia, like the trustees of Columbia University, you know, or who pay me or whatever. But there was always this discussion of like, when do you become a partner? What does that mean? How do you pay for that? What if you change your mind? What if you don't want to do it? And how clear some clinics is very clearly defined. Some clinics, it's not so clearly defined. So I think some people that's really important and they want to own something and they want to and others it's I think more just the status like that's what it's thought like you should do if you've been out for a while and you should have that because that's just the way our field has evolved I think it's in some ways being part of an academic center as long as you're you know compensated fairly and and that's you know a whole other topic as long as again you feel like you are you know you're doing well and you have good benefits and I think there are like really good benefits to being part of a large organization it takes and that stress off that rather than worrying about you have to take a loan to buy into a practice or something that's just it's not even a, a thing really for better or worse I think you've made a, an, an impassioned argument for the the benefits of private, or excuse me, of academic REI practice. How would you like to conclude? Is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to add? I mean, I don't know if this is relevant, but I think there's there, there's some things, and and I can give one example of like HIV, which was an interest of Columbia even before I came here, where there there may be you know some areas that are kind of small, a small number of patients may be affected by, and and it may just be easier or less risky for a private practice to just not deal with that. There are a lot of private practices, they just don't treat patients if one of the partners is HIV positive, when really, like, there are protocols out there that are safe, that it could be done, but it's a little bit of extra work and, and maybe some risk. And although I think that's really overstated even if you have good protocols in place. But I think my opinion that there's some inertia, like we don't do that. I mean, it's not like it's going to generate a huge amount of revenue. We don't really need to do that. Maybe leave that to the academic center. Well, we do that because we feel like, again, I mean, you can safely treat these patients and why shouldn't they have access to care? And I'd rather have an broader net and 
know, still safely and have protocols, but be able to take care of different patients that maybe fall through the cracks or maybe aren't profitable. But if we don't do that, you know, who will? So, and it also makes it more interesting, I think, than, than having certain rules. Like we don't, we don't do that. We don't do that here. Let's, let's see if we could find a way to do it because I think there's a role for it. So I think, um, as I mentioned before, I mean, we all, we went into this to help couples, help individuals build their families. And, and I think, you know, all of us are intellectually curious. And I think it's, it's, an, it's an interesting environment to practice in when we can solve problems and expand access to care and maybe not restrict it because it might not be profitable for the, the network or whatever that, that owns the practice. Dr. Eric Foreman, thank you so much for adding your perspective on Inside Reproductive Health. It was good talking to you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.